My name is Aaron Bastani. I'm senior editor of Viral Media. We've got the great pleasure this evening of co-hosting a second event in a series, which is being coordinated by Compass and Verso Books. The first event was last week. It looked at work in London. It was chaired by the excellent Emma Dowling. I'm told there'll be a very good podcast available soon with some of the people on that panel. Today, we'll be talking about a different topic, race and London, racism, racialization, how these intersect with other subjectivities, and what it means to be racialized in specific ways in London in 2016. I'm joined by Jemana Yunis from Sisters Uncut. I'm sure many of you have heard of their excellent work over the last year, year and a half. Ash Sarka, Navarra Media's very own Ash Sarka, uh, at IOCs on Twitter, as I'm so often told. And Liz Fiquette, Director of the Institute for Race Relations. We should also be joined by Adam Elliott Cooper, but unfortunately, he's not here yet. I'm told on good, good authority he should be here in the next 10, 15 minutes. He's stuck some on the Piccadilly line. So with no further ado, I'll start with you, Jamana. Uh, some of the work, some of the outstanding work by Tsunkat has looked at austerity, capitalism after 2008, specifically the cuts which have been imposed first by the coalition government and then by the Tories after 2015 and how these intersect with gender uh, and particularly uh, services to women. If you could talk a little bit about that for five minutes and then we can get started. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so as Aaron said, I'm from Sisters Uncut. We're a feminist direct action group that is campaigning to prevent and reverse cuts to domestic violence services. Um, I've been asked today to talk about racism and austerity as it affects the most vulnerable people in our society. And I think that when we talk about this, we really have to be focusing on women, particularly on black, and, um, women, black women and women of colour. Um, I wanted to start really by setting out what the aim of austerity is. I think it's a word that's thrown around a lot and often we don't define what it means. Um, for me and for Sisters Uncut, when we talk about austerity, we're talking about an all-out attack on public services. And that's all kinds of public services, not just domestic violence services, not just services for women. And we know that black women and women of color rely on these services more, almost more so than white women, arguably, because of the structural economic inequality that they face which means that they have, or they're less likely to have the financial resources with which to leave in a violent relationship. Austerity not only means losing our services, it also means losing youth clubs, losing access to the NHS, to adult and child social care. It means cuts to benefits. It means less access to social housing, cuts to mental health services, to our refuges, to our libraries, and many more. When we talk about the specific impact of austerity on domestic violence services, what we can see is that for black and minority ethnic women, specialist services which are crucial to their being able to leave a violent relationship, services which are run by women from their community, by women who understand what their cultural needs are, what their language needs are, who understand the specific types of barriers that they're facing to leaving a violent relationship, those services are disappearing. We know that specialist BME domestic violence services decreased by 17% between 2010 and 2014. And Imkan have reported that two out of six specialist 
black and minority ethnic refuges have closed. What that means is that for black and minority ethnic women, the access to support to leave a violent relationship is disappearing. And we know that with two women a week currently murdered at the hands of a current or former partner, that means those women are more likely to die. What we are seeing is that there's a restructuring of the way in which the councils are putting out contracts for domestic violence services. So the tendering processes, which previously were giving contracts, where councils previously give, gave contracts to uh, long-running organizations which had a history of serving the community, now there's a competitive tendering process whereby non-specialist organizations, including, for example, housing associations, even private security companies like Circa and G4S, are being invited to bid for domestic violence service contracts. That means that a private security company can end up running a women's refuge. That means completely non-specialized workers who don't have experience in the sector, and it means undercutting wages. We can see also with legal aid cuts that, again, new time limits have been introduced on evidence to prove that you're a victim of domestic violence to get legal aid has to be within the last 24 months now, which is absurd for women who may need to deal with child contact arrangements years after separating from a violent partner. It doesn't matter that it was more than two years ago that the last incident took place or that you have evidence. So that's a police report, that's a medical record, that's a GP report very specific things. That's, if that happened more than two years ago, you can no longer access legal aid. When we turn to immigration, this is where we really start to see how race and gender are intersecting to impact on women in this time of austerity. Women with no recourse to public funds, which is an immigration condition which is put on um, the visas of the majority of people coming from outside of Europe, but increasingly people from inside of Europe as well, means that you cannot access any form of state benefits, whether that's in or out of work benefits. That includes disability benefit. That includes child benefit. What we're talking about here is a complete lack of access to social housing. That means you can't get a refuge space. That means you don't have uh, legal aid except for asylum claims. And it means you have to pay up front now for NHS services. So for women fleeing a violent relationship, how on earth are you supposed to leave when you cannot, by any means, finance yourself to go into a refuge or to go somewhere else? You cannot access benefits to make yourself financially viable in order to leave a violent partner. So we're condemning, the, this government is condemning black and minority ethnic women, especially women who are not British, to being murdered by their partners. That's the reality. And if they're not murdered by their partners, then they may be carted off to one of the immigration detention centers that have gained infamy in the last few years, such as Yarl's Wood, where we know that the rates of sexual abuse by guards is, is high, where guards often coerce um, detainees into having relationships with them um, in order to get favors and things like that. And 70% of the women in Yarl's Wood are survivors of sexual trauma. So what we're talking about here when we look at the impact of austerity and racist immigration policies on black and minority ethnic women, it's compounding. Every aspect of your life and these, the way these cuts impact on you compounds your experience of trauma as a woman. We know that um, landlords are now being encouraged to check the immigration status. Not encouraged, sorry. Landlords are now obliged to check the immigration status of tenants that they're letting to. Otherwise, they face up to £3,000 of a fine per tenant who did not have secure immigration status. So again, women are being forced into a situation where 
there is no opportunity for them to turn somewhere in order to be able to leave a violent relationship. They're condemned um, to staying in that relationship. And then when we turn to looking at state violence, it's interesting because there's a, there's a number of ways in which the government's policies are working together. It's not just the obvious cuts like benefits and housing. We can see that, for example, the women's prison population has more than doubled since 1995, from 1995 to 2010. And the reason for that is because there's a rise in the number of women being given custodial sentences for what was previously considered to be relatively minor crimes. So, for example, between 2009 and 2013, the number of women sentenced to custody for theft from a shop increased by almost 20%. That's not an accident. There's a reason why when the government is pushing women into a position where they do not have access to financial resources to make their own lives viable, to be able to provide for their children and to live safely, women are turning to to crime in order to be able to support themselves and then those crimes are being penalized in a completely different way to the way that they used to be and women in prison are an amazing organization that are doing really good work on this and looking at criminal justice alternatives to criminal justice for women um, who are currently in prison 46 percent of women in prison at the moment have reported that they've suffered from domestic violence and 81 percent of those women are serving time for a non-violent crime. So what we can see is that women are being disenfranchised, they're being marginalized, um, and they're being really targeted by these austerity measures and then pushed into a position where the only alternatives really are to end up either dead or in prison, in a mental health institution, or in detention. When we turn to mental health, we can see that research from the Mental Health Foundation shows us specifically the intersection between race and uh, targeting at the end of a mental, uh, through a mental health uh, act. We know that African and Caribbean people living in the UK are more likely than any other um, group of people in the UK to be diagnosed with severe mental illness. Black men in Britain are seven time, 17 times more likely than white counterparts to be diagnosed with a psychotic illness. When we think about the death of Sarah Reed recently in Holloway Prison, what we can see is the intersection here between the mental health system and between prisons and the fatal impact that that can have for black women in particular. So, in order not to leave it on a completely depressing note, um, the reason that Sisters Uncut formed is in order to combat this. Sisters Uncut is led by and puts at the forefront black women and women of colour from working class communities, women who are disabled, women who are mothers and carers. And we fight against austerity and we fight against cuts to services that save our lives. We do so out of a sense of urgency. We do so out of necessity. And that's the reason that we put, the, put women of colour and black women at the forefront of our movement, because we have that sense of urgency. Without this movement, we won't survive. And so many of our, of our sisters haven't survived. Um, we have groups all forming all over the country now, and we're in Bristol, Glasgow, Portsmouth, Doncaster, Warwick, and pretty much anywhere you can think of, people have contacted us. So I believe that with this self-organized struggle of women and non-binary people, we will be able to end this onslaught of state violence. Thank you. Superb. Really excellent. Really superb. Um,
we'll make sure that there are contact details available for anybody that wants to find out more about Citizen Cut at the end of this event. You want to get involved, we'll make sure that email, contacts, and so on are made available. Next up is Ash. This is Adam, by the way. This Hi. gentleman's probably <laughs> stuck on a train until very recently, I presume. Uh, Ash will speak next about prevent and the racialization of Muslims. So often you hear, well, you know, Muslims aren't a race, but the point is they are racialized as a particular other. Ash, you want to talk about that, and you want to talk in particular about prevent. Yeah, I want to start off by talking a bit about prevent. Um, I want to move on to the um, particular ways in which Muslims are racialized, its relationship to um, older forms of scientific racism, and again, hopefully, and on a more uplifting or hopeful <laughs> note in terms of how we can aim to uh, reclaim some of the terrain of this, this discourse um, around Muslims and um, in particular around uh, cultural assimilation. Um, the reason why I want to start off by talking about prevent isn't just because it represents such a um, worrying and pernicious assault on academic freedoms, freedoms of expression, freedoms of assembly, and freedoms of movement, um, but because I think there's a real paucity in even like media, like sympathetic media discourses in terms of how, how this is being critiqued and um, how uh, it's proposed that we go about challenging it. Um, just to set a little bit of background, um, 4,000 people were referred to prevent last year. And there was only one region that provided a detailed breakdown um, in terms of age groups and demographics. But of the, in the West Midlands, of the 788 people referred to channel, over half were aged 19 or under. And of that, 68 people were aged nine years old or under. Just let that sink in for a moment. Nine years old or under. And firstly, this is massively underreported, right? Um, in an era where there is a pervasive clash of civilizations narrative whereby the West, Europe, America is seen as like the beacons of freedom of expression, freedom of speech against the barbarous, repressive East. Um, this really isn't being reported or criticized as it ought to be, right? As a howling hypocrisy at the very center of our culture. And even when it is being criticized, and you have things like the, um, you heard about the cucumber drawing by the four-year-old, which was mistaken by a nursery uh, worker as a cooker bomb. Um, and the other much more widely reported example of the 14-year-old talking about eco-terrorism in his French class who was pulled out and uh, questioned by police. Even when this is being reported as um, you know, a, a social evil, a social bad, Prevent as a whole isn't being criticized. These instances are being presented as an improper, uh, an improper and um, imp mistakenly implemented program, right? The program isn't being criticized as a whole. It's just saying it's been implemented poorly. And this really frustrates me because it is not supposed to work well. Prevent, channel, it's not supposed to work intelligently. It's supposed to create a climate of fear. It's supposed to make Muslims and in more generally people of color feel like they're under surveillance, feel that they can't express themselves politically or even at all, and to make them feel that they are not really part of this society. Um, and that's why I think we really have to, ch to challenge the premise that prevent is built on. So not just prevent as a policy, but the assumptions that are encoded within it. And I think the primary one that we need to really critique is that one cannot create a sense of community or a sense of belonging 
you cannot include marginalized people through the threat of state violence, right? Um, you cannot say you must feel a profound sense of Britishness because if you don't, you'll be questioned by police. I'm also questioning how, uh, how attractive the proposition of Britishness is in the first place, but I think that might be another story. Um, the next thing I would like to talk about very briefly is the increase of Muslims in prison, right? So there's been a 122% increase of Muslims in prison since 2002, and that's huge. And that's not just because there's been an, incre an increase in the incarcerated population generally. They've actually taken up a much bigger percentage of the incarcerated population, going from 7.7% to 14.4%. Now, upon first glance, you think, OK, this must be all for like, terrorism-related offences or things like that. Actually, no. Every study that's been done has, been, has shown that this is the result of entrenched economic and social inequalities. And one of the reasons that this is so clear is because of the overwhelming um, youth of that incarcerated population. 58% of Muslim inmates in prison are aged 30 or under. For comparison, it's 45% in the general population. And in um, secure units where um, youth offenders are incarcerated, one in five of those inmates are Muslim. And this is the result of discriminatory policies and economic inequalities. And you can't address this through a soft liberal discourse around diversity or inclusion. I think this is where, to build on what you were saying, we really must challenge capitalism and the brutal economic policies around austerity. Um, I really think that not only is diversity and the language around diversity, inclusion, and even to an extent state-sponsored multiculturalism, not only is this failing to address the entrenched problems of racism, it's since been co-opted and I think used to further reproduce racist discourses and entrench these problems further. The problem with diversity, um, one, it's a little bit silly because obviously when we're talking about diversity, we don't mean diversity. We're not talking about a problem of numbers. Um, in built in this idea is that some races are much more diverse than others. Sorry, white people. Um, it doesn't address power. It doesn't address history. And it certainly doesn't address money. I think in contrast to diversity, I think we need to adopt and promote... We need to adopt and promote a thinking which is based on decolonization. And it might sound a bit weird, right? Because decolonization is something that happens elsewhere in the colonies, far away. Um, it's something which belongs to a particular window of history. I really disagree with this. I think we need to look at ways in which we need to decolonize the city, right? This means challenging gentrification. It means challenging police violence. It means challenging inequalities in terms of healthcare and education provision. And I think it certainly means challenging the epistemic violence of the academy, of our education system more generally and media discourses. And I think a second thing that we can think about is not just you know, um, unthinkingly reproducing a criticism of Islam which casts it as uniquely brutal, backwards and regressive, but maybe even try and reclaim the term radical Islam itself, right? Propose an actually radical Islam which begins from the marginalized subject position of Muslims in Europe and the UK and extrapolates from that a sense of solidarity with oppressed and exploited people everywhere, which says that women are entitled to bodily autonomy and agency, whether we wear bikinis or burqas, which fights for the rights of LGBT, 
LGBT people from all communities <coughs> and also rejects the accusations that Jewish populations are uniquely Islamophobic and, is and Islamic populations are somehow uniquely anti-Semitic because this, this is, of course, a narrative which lets the state entirely off the hook. And I think that we can reframe this as an emancipatory project. Um, it's something I would like to hear some feedback on a lot more because I've been toying with this idea for a while. Um, thanks for listening. a very brave panel discussion that can talk about, you know, inverting radical Islam for progressive events. I'm sure we can try. Uh, hopefully there'll be a Daily Mail journalist here somewhere. We'll get, we'll get some press coverage out of it. Um, I really do want to go back to this point about diversity, its commodification, its role within a certain kind of city, a certain kind of metropolis, and its relationship to oppression whiteness. Next we've got Liz Fiquette. Liz is director of the Institute for Race Relations. Um, you're going to be talking, we talked about what Liz will cover in the, in the green room. It's going to be about ideology, racism. That sounds huge, but I think Liz is going to be very, uh, very succinct about what that means. So, Liz. In fact, uh, I wanted to talk about racism and living in London. Because I've always lived in London, and I'm a lot older than everybody else on this panel, and I'm probably the oldest person in the room. So you'll have to be nice to me, show respect for your elders. Um, because I've seen London transformed and changed in the period, but I was born in 1959. Uh, my parents were refugees for, after the Second World War. Uh, and when I first started getting involved in politics, long before the heady days when I uh, became the director of the Institute of Race Relations, these were pretty electric times in London. I was living in Newham in 1982. There were big self-defence campaigns. The first campaign of children who went on strike because of racial violence in Newham. And there were massive demonstrations in Newham. It was uh, shortly after the 81 uprisings. Later, we were have, going to have more uprisings in Broadwater Farm. Brixton, etc., all started through incidents of police violence. And those were heady days because we were all in London linked, in a sense, in communities of resistance. There were very, very strong black, as a political colour, not colour of your skin, black communities who were linked in Hackney, in Brixton, in Tottenham, in Newham. And they were indeed, you know, very, very exciting times to live through. But at that time, there was no sense uh, that we could even use the terms that we're using here on the platform. Uh, people uh, in the mainstream, it was a very monocultural time in terms of official policy. Uh, black people, people of colour who talked about racism would be made to feel that they had a chip on their shoulder. Um, and so I think you will have heard about the whole question of the Stephen Lawrence case and the McPherson inquiry and the whole uh, recognition in this country, the only country in Europe that officially recognised that there was institutionalised racism in society. 
Well, Sir William McPherson wasn't like Sir Christopher Columbus. He didn't set out on his boat and discover institutionalised racism. Everybody for 10, 15, 20, 30 years had been saying that there was institutionalised racism and state racism in this country. In fact, the first person, I think, to use the term institutionalised racism was Stokely Carmichael in the Black Power Movement in America. So those were the times... Um, and the reason that I wanted to sort of start there is that I feel that we're going back to that time. Um, as my sister here talked about state-sponsored multiculturalism. I don't quite see it like that. What I think happened um, after 81 and 85 and after all these big struggles and a space opened up in society and the things that people in struggle have been saying were recognised, I think the state was very, very clever. I don't think the state has ever... Um, celebrated uh, people's cultural and diverse backgrounds, what they were very good at, and we've seen this recently with um, the whole um, Zach Goldsmith uh, issue and the issuing of leaflets um, around uh, the mayoral election. It's what they were very good at doing was using culturalism and ethnicity to break down the solidarity of people's struggles so that people identified as ethnic groups in competition with each other. And the reason I say that I feel that we're going back to a stage where the gains on those struggles um, are being eroded really relates back to everything the two sisters here have said. Um, you know, racism doesn't stand still. It's changing its shape in terms of changes in the political economy changes in the social relations in society. That's a really nice phrase. It's not mine. It's, it's, it's my boss's, Sivanandan, who's um, my elder, who I learn from. And here, the two defining uh, factors in determining the racism that we're facing today are both war, militarisation, war on terror, and this dreadful spiral of violence, which means that any event in any European country, in Paris, in Brussels, is going to impact on living in London. So this is one aspect that is shaping racism in today, uh, today in London, and the other is neoliberalism. The war on terror, the whole anti-terrorist laws, which have, we've had, how many anti-terrorist laws have we had? Does anyone know? Five, six? since, to, yeah, a lot. All these anti-terrorist laws have actually reshaped our criminal justice system so that it's more punitive in terms of Muslims. More punitive, more punishment, more incarceration, lesser standards. So you've had that, and through that, we've come to the point that we've got prevent. Preventing, you know, it's actually now preventing non-violent extremism. And as you know, we've heard the rolling out of that county radicalised me measure in schools, in nurseries, for doctors, for social workers, it's actually terrifying because what it is showing is that we're seeing a major transformation of policing in this country. We are all becoming police officers who are meant to po police subject communities. So that's one thing. And the other aspect, as we've heard, is neoliberalism. Now, neoliberalism and austerity, which, for me, austerity is a bit like the shock doctrine. 
Austerity is the way that they can bring in very, very quickly measures to, you know, um, uh, privatise state assets, shrink the welfare budget, um, uh, deregulate labour even further. This is also impacting on the shape of racism because what we now have is the idea that we're a post-racial society, we've done institutional racism, you know, we're so kind, us British, with our superior British values, we recognise institutional racism, we've done that. So therefore, if there is inequality, which there is growing and mounting inequality in our city, in London, which women and black women and women of colour and gypsy and traveller women and others are impacted more harshly on. It's also changing the discourse because the whole idea is that if you are mired in inequality, if you are suffering, it's because of cultural deficit. It's because of your backward cultures. It's because you're, 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 you're Muslim and you're sort of, you know, you're in your backward culture. Or you're a refugee who um, shouldn't really be here in the first place. I mean, according to our friend Katie Hopkins, you're, if you're a refugee, you're a cockroach. If, uh, according to our Prime Minister, who talks about swarms of migrants, you know, all these things. So if it, if it, and if you're black and if you're young, it's because you're in a gang. So all of these things, for me, that's what I see, having the long view, that we're going back to arguments of cultural deficit, which were actually very popular in the 50s and 60s. Um, just to sort of conclude... Um, the Institute is um, its really an anti-racist publishing centre. We're also an educational charity and research organisation. We produce um, a, a, a regular news service, which is free. You can just sign up to it. Every two weeks you'll get um, stories that don't, you know, you might not hear about in the news. I actually do work on Europe. My work is mostly around Europe. And I'm doing a lot of work on the whole refugee uh, crisis. Tomorrow we're going to have a piece on our new service, which we've been working on with friends in Germany, about the neo-Nazis who are employed by private security companies and are actually running refugee centres in, Ger in Germany. So please sign up to, to that news service. Um, so just to con conclude, I think racism is a very key aspect of living in London today. And what I fear, particularly with the new housing and the immigration legislation, that we are actually beginning to see a revolution in the spatial planning of London. We know with what's happening in housing, how they're trying to get poor people out of the inner London boroughs. I fear that we are moving to a situation where London is going to look more like Paris and where poor people and black people and people of colour will live in the outer ring and be subjected to a militarised form of policing, almost like a low-intensity conflict form of policing, because those people, the Muslims, the migrants, the refugees, are going to be seen as the suspect communities. So that's what I fear, that we're moving back to a monocultural London. Thank you.
there's actually a great book by a gentleman called uh, Frank Kitson. I think it's called Countering Low-Intensity Conflict or Low-Intensity Insurgency. And he was the guy that basically came up with the counterinsurgency strategy in Burma. He then applied it to Northern Ireland. An amazing book. It was written in the early 1970s. He said, by the mid middle of this decade, the end of this decade, we will have to apply these kinds of tactics on the mainland. Um, and I think you're entirely right. I think since 1981, that's clearly happened. A uh, quick question before we pass on to Adam. Uh, Liz made the point, the, the proposition, that we're going backwards. Who here thinks that London, in terms of race relations, is going forwards? Please put your hand up. Things are getting better. We're more integrated. We're, you know, people are... Nobody. It's complicated. It's complicated, but no, but there's a, there's, a liberal, there's a liberal story, right, which says that things are getting better. And... I, Well, I think Liz is saying basically since neoliberalism, right, which you could say neoliberalism is weak unions, low pay, a particular kind of uh, policy environment. That's been around since the mid-1970s, let's say. It's probably better now than the mid-1970s. You think? Okay. So you don't yeah. think it's going backwards then? Not versus 1975. Right. No, versus 2012, sure. Okay. Okay. I'll be more specific. Who thinks it's going backwards since 2012? Okay. So it's not a... Outlandish statement, that's good. I'd, I'd agree with it. Next is Adam. Adam is a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford uh, Geography Department. Correct, yeah. Uh, so, Adam, I'll leave with you. Cool. Um, uh, I guess I'll kind of be speaking to that question about whether things are getting better or not. Um, I guess the short answer is probably time is not linear. Um, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, so I've got five minutes to do a quick whistle-stop tour of British state racism, um, which would be easy if we began British state racism in the 1940s and 50s, as we often do. Um, but I'm instead going to probably begin in about 1498, so I might talk quite quickly. Sorry about that. Um, um, so as we know, British state racism um, has yeah, taken place for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, the, the important thing to remember is that most, for most of that time, um, it hasn't taken place on British mainland. It's taken place in its dominions, in its territories. Um, and so I want to kind of talk briefly about three different topics, um, topics that we've been talking about today. Um, gentrification and austerity, uh, racist discourses, and security, policing, and surveillance. Um, so I guess in relation to gentrification and austerity, um, as you've already mentioned, there City planners in Britain, um, I know that at UCL, um, architect students have, have been taught that they need to design cities um, going forward more similar to uh, those in places like Paris and elsewhere where uh, the poorer sections of society are in the suburbs. But this isn't necessarily something particularly new. Um, Britain uh, designed many cities like this across the African continent and its other colonies um, where they would situate a European quarter um, in, if you take uh, Kenya or Nairobi, for instance, if anyone's ever fortunate enough to visit Nairobi, it's like you have large Victorian-style parks, um, you have skyscrapers, you have uh, well-paved roads and what have you, um, and it's the surrounding areas that we will see uh, greater levels of poverty. And these cities were designed by the British. Um, and so we see the beginnings of these kinds of uh, things take place and, uh, over 100 years ago. And, and it's these kind of, kind of colonial practices, I think, that we're seeing reproduced here in Britain today. And I think one of the reasons that we're able to see those kinds of patterns is because in many of the colonies you had large surplus populations, um, particularly in settler colonies such as Kenya. And so therefore you didn't need a, a, a proletariat, a, a working class, uh, to be in urban areas to... to uh, to work in the factories and what have you as, as you did in London. And so with 
what we might call post-industrialization as we see factories and other forms of industrial labor uh, migrating to uh, many of the former colonies and other parts of the global south, um, we see similar patterns taking place. Um, the, um, the, the wealthy no longer uh, need uh, a proletariat to be anywhere near them um, in any real sense. Um, and uh, in, and uh, improvements to infrastructure and what have you mean that it's, it's foreseeable for the small number of workers that they do need to serve them coffee or what have you um, to travel in. Um, to the centres. And so what I think what we're seeing is a kind of, not a reproduction necessarily of, of what took place in the colonies, but certainly a reproduction of equivalent patterns. Um, and I think we can, it's important to kind of draw those kinds of parallels so that we can see what from the past is being re repeated and what new aspects are being brought in as well. Um, I think we're also seeing, um, I know this has been touched upon already, but I think we're also seeing interesting patterns and changes in racist discourses. Um, I remember reading, I can't remember, I think it was The Empire Strikes Back by Paul Gilroy, where he had a quote, I'm not being rude, I'm getting the quote, um, where he said, um, he says, stowaways, drifters, pimps, and drug dealers, whose procession extends into the present in the form of muggers, illegal immigrants, black extremists, and criminal Rastafarians, dreads. The black folk devil has acquired greater power with each subsequent permutation. Um, so this was written in 1982, um, I believe. And so I think what Paul Gilroy is kind of talking about here is the, uh, the different ways in which criminalization and ways of like, essentializing race are kind of projected um, onto black bodies. But Writing this in the early 1980s, and I guess he must have been writing in the late 1970s, early 80s, these kinds of crude stereotypes were always used alongside more overt, bigoted language. You'd be, you know, you'd be much as like, much as like, just as likely to be called whatever bigoted phrase as you are a pimp, a drug dealer, um, a black extremist, a stowaway, and what have you. But I think that one of the gains of the anti-racist movements. Um, has been a silencing of these kinds of more overt forms of bigotry. Um, it's, it's no longer socially acceptable. It's political suicide in many ways and social suicide to utter these kinds of bigoted phrases or to even be labelled a racist. Even the head of the English Defence League is adamant that he is not a racist. And, it's, and so we, ha we have a racism without racists, right? What we do have is racism articulated um, through new discourses. As I mentioned before, the gang is this um, racist discourse. So in the 1980s, um, you had um, uh, Kenneth Newman, um, Sir Kenneth Newman, sorry, um, head of the Metropolitan Police, talk about this distinctive Jamaican culture um, and it was this Jamaican culture they had to deal with. You won't have the police say this anymore. But after the civil unrest of 2011, what you did have is David Cameron announce an all-out war on gangs and gang culture. And so he's effectively saying the exact same thing, but through this kind of more coded racism. And I think that this form of coded racism is particularly um, dangerous because it feeds into neoliberalism very, very well. It identifies individual failings from specific people or maybe small specific communities or small specific parts of communities. And these things need to be remedied so that they can be incorporated into the needs of capital and the state. Um, 
And so I think that, we're, and of course, you know, we see this in um, other discourses as well, uh, the war on terror, the wars on counter-extremism, um, the security that we need from waves or floods of migrants, um, all of these types of um, racist discourses which are far more subtle, um, I think, in some ways than the kind of bigotry that we might associate with, um, with, with racism in, on, a, on a more kind of mainstream level, but I think are just as damaging and possibly more damaging because they can operate under the surface and, um, and uh, are sometimes more difficult to detect. Right, lastly, security, policing and surveillance. So um, I read a really interesting article here, which I'm basically just going like, to try and summarise in about a minute and a half, I assume, um, which was called Is the Empire Coming Home? by a guy called John Moore. Um, he's at University of West England. Um, and what he did was he looked at the kind of security policies of, of, of the British state today um, and the major criticisms that are coming out of you know, all these new awful forms of securitization. He looked at surveillance and CCTV. He looked at um, how people are being criminalized um, such as through things such as ASBOs. Um, and he looked at the rise of the prison system and the rise of the, kind of the prison industrial complex. And, and what he found was that although there have been some changes, most of those changes have been technological rather than kind of ideological or, or, or practical in other ways. So what he did was he thought about the ways in which um, the, surveillance, um, the surveillance state is kind of growing in Britain and how particularly people identified as Muslim um, are being uh, monitored more closely. And then he looked at um, British co colonial practices in India. And what he found was that there were very similar kind of forms of rationale um, used to identify and monitor um, uh, the people colonised in India at this time. One of them was um, a man called Francis Galton, who identified that um, every human being, when he was in India, he identified that every human being has an individual fingerprint. Um, and this can be really useful for monitoring and um, keeping track of all of Britain's colonial subjects in India. According to Francis Galton, that's because all Indians look the same. But you can't trust what he says because he also coined the term eugenics. Um, and so what we see is quite similar, kind of similar practices using um, the most advanced technology possible to monitor, monitor and control specific criminalised populations. So you also saw this in India with the tattooing of the foreheads um, of particular people who had been criminalised um, through um, what they called the Tribes Act. Um, and so specific people can be identified um, as um, either criminals or being of a criminal disposition from, because they're from a certain social group within, uh, within India. And their foreheads were tattooed so they could be monitored more closely. So this is a kind of a way of naming and shaming. And you see similar things happening today following the civil unrest of 2011. You see um, the mugshots of people who are implicated in the, the unrest being put on billboards and shopping centres or in newspapers or on television and what have you. Um, and kind of trying to name and shame these individuals in ways that can appear quite, quite new, I think. Um, you also saw, we also, we're also seeing the rise of, um, I think, of, as we know, of, of prisons. We're seeing prison numbers um, increase exponentially, as I'm sure has already been, been mentioned. And although this, again, this can, some, can be a, this can appear to be something that's something quite new, something that's emerged of neoliberalism, you saw the rise of huge prison systems in Britain's colonies. If we think about uh, the ways in which it operated in Kenya in the 1950s, in which tens of thousands of people were imprisoned um, following the so-called Kenyan emergency, um, which was ironically, was to um, uh, counter uh, terrorism in the area. 
Um, and the first state's prison system that Britain um, ever um, experimented with was actually in Jamaica. Um, and so we can see the ways in which Britain experimenting and, and um, with different forms of prison systems to criminalise people begins in the colonies and then kind of reproduces itself in a new modern form um, here as well. And I guess um, the final thing I thought of to kind of touch upon what, what Liz was saying slightly was, was um, the fact that many of these um, kind of colonial practices were brought back to Britain to test and use upon um, uh, black populations here. And I think one of the most interesting of those was the establishment of the riot police, um, as we know them today, with um, the, the helmets and the shields and all of those things, which were brought following the Broadwater Farm uprisings in 1985. And so you, saw, you begin to see this militarisation of the policing here on the British Lake mainland, in a specifically in response to black uprisings. Um, and I'll leave it there. So we'll have a conversation for about 15 minutes. We were told 20 minutes, but I think we should probably get to the Q&As as quickly as possible. I want to um, go back to this idea of uh, decolonizing the city. So what's the difference then between a diverse city and a decolonized city? Um, well, it's also kind of responding to a point that you made um, around my use of the phrase state-sponsored multiculturalism. I think to clarify my comments a little bit, I'm talking about the way in which the language of diversity, inclusion, and multiculturalism um, has been appropriated by politicians, and I think to achieve like incredibly regressive aims in terms of racism in this country. I think the language of diversity has this problem, right? It's, it operates outside of history, it operates outside of power. And that's how you can have someone like Trevor Phillips say something along the lines of, Muslims are different from us, right? They will never integrate. And I think that this comes back to this question about scientific and cultural racism, which aren't necessarily distinct. I mean, they certainly interact, especially in the present day, like Islamophobic discourses. But what he's playing on here is the general acceptance that it is wrong to have a sense of antipathy towards someone based on the color of their skin, or it's certainly wrong to explicitly state that, even if it's not wrong to act on it or indeed form government policy around it. But it is okay to talk about irreconcilable cultural differences. And I think that's something which is being played on more and more in politics and in the media. And so that's what I think the problem with diversity is. It's not challenging structures. Mm -hmm certainly not even challenging culture and the way in which power expresses itself within that. Do you think it's actively counterproductive, though? Yeah. I, I, th I think, so it, I think it is. It reproduces power asymmetries. Yes, yeah. I think so. And I think that's why you have to talk about decolonization and decoloniality rather than diversity. I mean, also part of that is like a bit of trolling on my part, right? Because scaring white people is great. But it's also a way of talking about the way in which gentrification is inherently racialized, policing is inherently racialized, Gender violence is inherently racialized. Um, I think that what the language of decolonization offers is a solid and material historical perspective that the language of diversity doesn't. Jamana, uh, you were talking about some of the grievances, the huge issues that Sister Uncut comes up against. Uh, like Liz, I think you're saying that they're a structural consequence of neoliberalism, austerity as a particular mm. kind of political economy, yeah. particular way of regulating the economy. And how that marginalises specific groups in particular ways. Mm -hmm. What then is the political response to that? Does Sisters Uncut have to have a kind of an economic programme that's against neoliberalism? Or 
Are there ways that particular marginal groups can advance their interests whilst, broadly speaking, the, the structure of things stays the same? Or does it all have to be changed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sisters Uncut situates itself as a group that is anti-austerity at its heart. So whilst we're focusing very specifically on cuts to domestic violence services, what we're actually doing is creating a community that is an alternative. So within our community, we take on issues of racism. We look at issues of anti-blackness, even within communities of color. We look at issues of class. We have caucuses, which are, represented, uh, which are representative of different identity groups. And we have accountability and transformative justice processes within our group, which are aimed at counteracting the, the self-same structures outside of the group, which, you know, which we believe are the causes of this inequality. Would you, would you, okay, so the cause is austerity. Would you say the cause is capitalism? Or are yeah. these two... They, okay, so they're the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wanted to pick up a little bit on what Ash was saying about the racialized way in which uh, gender-based violence is being talked about in the media and by the government because I think it's really interesting and it's very pertinent in the in the present in the present time because what we're seeing at the moment is that when when we do hear about gender-based violence in the UK what we hear about is female genital mutilation we hear about forced marriage and we read endless newspaper stories and the government bring in, in new legislation around forced marriage, such as forced marriage protection orders, which completely disregard the ways in which victims or survivors would like to be treated. They criminalize, they criminalize their families, and they force survivors to choose, basically, between the white benevolent savior state and the backwards Muslim brown or black family and community. So they're completely in contradiction to the way that black and minority ethnic women's services have been working for decades, which is to come from within the community, to tackle these issues from within the community and led by women of colour from those communities themselves. But it's also used as like a fig leaf to cover the problems caused by austerity, right? You cut frontline services, you place, say, social workers, um, nurses, teachers under a tremendous amount of strain, just overloading them with work, mm. and then you bring in this incredibly reactionary but media-friendly legislation say, look, we're doing something about violence, yeah. whereas actually inhibiting the means to tackle it. Yeah, of course. I mean, two women a week are still being murdered. It's, nothing's changed. Liz, you, 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 in your five, ten minutes, you were saying that things have gone backwards. In this particular area mm. around women's, ri women's rights, reproductive rights, and how that intersects with racialization, mm. um, Islamophobia more recently, what's your opinion on that? Well, just following from that, I mean, I think we've got... Um, a state policy now when it comes to uh, poverty, when it comes to domestic violence, when it comes to um, providing sites for gypsies and travellers, it's the idea of mainstreaming. So uh, the government doesn't uh, roll out any policy that is based on the specific need of a specific community. So therefore, everything that a black women's organisation knows about the best way to reach the community is eroded by this mainstreaming approach. So I completely agree with that, and I've forgotten what your question was. It was about, in terms of what you've seen, and yeah. oh, yes. what, what's the direction in terms of women, women's services and austerity? Long, and the long sort of well, long I mean, local authorities have been cut by about 75%, haven't they? Um, democracy starts at the local level. When you have... I mean, we, the, 
We're having a mass... People say that the state is shrinking. The state isn't shrinking. It's being transformed. And that actually they're, they're governing through us. Uh, what, I mean, I, think, I can't remember who, who, which one of us said it, but what they're trying to do is they're talking about the third sector. So, I mean, you've got this new uh, legislation coming out that any organisation that takes money, like an NGO or a third sector organisation, that takes money from government cannot criticise government policy. You've got a situation where um, you, have to, um, you have to bid for contracts. And you've got to have a private partner, and a private partner wants a, a, a third sector partner. All of this is eroding the independence of the voluntary sector. And that's why, I mean, the women's struggle around domestic violence has been at the forefront of the fight to try and stop that erosion of the independence of, of the voluntary sector. So. Yeah, does that answer your question? That's great. <laughs> I was going to say, in terms of this idea that, you know, obviously the, the story that comes out of neoliberals mm. since the, the late 1970s, early 1980s, is of course they want a smaller state, but it's not a smaller state. If you look at government spending as a percentage of GDP yeah. until 2010, actually, yeah. it, under Thatcher, went up dramatically yeah. because the point is they are spending money on very different things, right? So military Keynesianism under Reagan in the United States, weapons, you know, huge investments like nuclear weapons and so on but also prisons, policing. Yeah. They don't want a small state when it comes yeah. to police budgets, do they? Um, Adam, anything to add? Um, I, I guess the only thing it really makes me think about is the fact that this is quite similar to capitalism, right? Cap like, uh, capitalists have always kind of complained about the state generally, even before neoliberalism, but capitalism would completely crumble without state investment, without very, very heavy state sub subsidies. In, and the most powerful capitalist states in the entire world would not exist without the backward socialism of the states subsidising industries, paying for all the kind of research and development of IT or infrastructure or anything like that that is necessary for these so-called capitalists that aren't really capitalists at all in the kind of theoretical sense of the term. Um, and so I think we're, we're seeing a kind of escalation of that with neoliberalism. It's becoming even more stark, I think, those, those divides, and, um, which is leading to all of the depressing things we've been all been talking about. Hopefully we'll have some positive notes to end up towards the end. So questions and then hopefully answers. Answer. We've got a mic going around, so there's a couple over here. Two guys. Oh, I can make a mental note, so please put your hand up. Thank you. Um, so this is, of course, very sad because you have a very good panel and then the first question is from a middle-class white guy. Um, I had two, but I'll keep the other one in reserve perhaps for later. One question I had is, to what extent is... What I found interesting is that a lot of you have framed racism here in terms of the legacy of the British Empire. I'm not British, I'm Dutch. We also have an empire. But I was wondering... To what extent is that a useful lens to look through? And to what extent does that sort of ignore commonalities in racism that you see in other white societies that do not have a similar colonial history like Britain, which is, of course, very unique? So if you look at certain Eastern European countries, for instance, that do not have the same colonial history but do have enormous problems with racism. So I'm always saying, aren't you losing something by trying to frame it almost exclusively as a, a British racism, as it were? Great question. There's one other person over there, and then we'll, I think, we'll get answered and then we'll go back out again. 
Uh, yeah, I was interested in the comments about gentrification in London and, you know, the increasing sense that London is beginning to look like Paris in terms of, you know, the outer suburbs increasingly becoming the place where working class people of colour have to live in a city, very white, very middle class, etc. Um, as a teacher in an inner city school, I mean, I have experiences of dozens of students who've had to move out of the school I used to work in, Pimlico, because of the housing benefit cap and the selling off of sort of social housing in Zone 1 They've had to like leave the communities they've lived in their entire lives to go and live in Zone 6, having to leave their schools. Very, very depressing. Now, the question I have is, concretely, I think with the issue of gentrification, there are sometimes weak politics about it in terms of, if we're thinking about it uh, as someone in Momentum and the Labour Party, Sadiq Khan, he has very, very weak policies on housing currently. It's very woolly stuff about affordable housing. What are the kind of demands we should be making on Sadiq Khan about housing in London and gentrification? Great question. So I suppose I'll work this way up from Jamana. The first question was about racism and this particular lens that we've had here this evening about, you know, it being a legacy of British imperialism. Yeah, um, I think that's interesting. I think my whole life I have really fought to put racism in the context of British imperialism because it was never provided for me. I think at school you're taught to very much separate out um, the, the imperial legacy or the colonial legacy that Britain has from modern day racist policies and racism as it's experienced in the street. So actually I think that the reason that there's this emphasis on British racism as specific to our colonial experience is because for people of colour and black people in the UK, we have been, from my perspective, completely disconnected from that experience and denied a history. And I think for, for me, I found it very powerful to be able to connect myself back to my, um, to, my, um, to my grandparents and to my history of migration to understand my sense of kind of uprootedness here and to understand the way in which the British state interacts with me um, and the kind of contradictions that come about as a result of that. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's a really great question. I guess my response to it is that while colonialism plays itself out in various, very, in very specific ways, so French colonialism had a very different sense of what the civilizing mission was as opposed to, as opposed to British colonialism, there does exist a global color bar, right? Whiteness is a global phenomenon. White supremacy is a global phenomenon which plays out in geographically and culturally specific ways. And um, I know that this is something that you love to talk about and probably a lot better than me. Oh, but, um, you're doing great. Oh, oh cheers, buddy. <laughs> um, and uh, these things affect each other all the time, right? American racist discourses affected ones in Britain and vice versa. So I think that there's a danger in saying that just because a country doesn't have its specific colonial history doesn't mean that it doesn't have a colonial legacy, which is kind of absorbed from other places. Um, yeah. Well, um, my answer is quite sort of simple, but I thought the subject meeting was living in London. Um, I would have been happy, more than happy, to speak about other racisms because my work is mostly around European racism. But if we're talking about living in London, we have to be specific to the historical and cultural determinants of, of racism in London. Interestingly enough, I was, my mind's been thinking about the whole sort of de decolonisation thing and 
for me, part of that is about decolonising London, is about making sure that the radical, anti-imperialist, anti-racist tradition in London is actually there and visible all around us. So I'm sorry to say that as a side. But just to conclude, actually racism in London is being shaped by European racism. All our refugee policy is harmonised from Europe. Uh, the discourse around criminality is increasingly shaped by events that happen because of this 24-hour media. So you'll see that the whole stuff in Cologne, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine at the moment, if you see that when Alan Kurdi, uh, the, the body of Ali and Kurdi, uh, floated up on the beach uh, in se September, I believe, of last year. All the newspapers around the world were saying Europe finds its conscience, Europe finds its soul, and this is terrible. And then after New Year's Eve and Cologne, the whole discourse, the narrative changed, but both those <coughs> incidents were instrumentalised to change attitudes to refugees around Europe. So I think that could be an interesting conversation. And if First Stone Compass wants to do another meeting, I'll be happy to come, because I've got loads to say on that subject. Adam? Uh, yeah, I can only really echo what Ash said. Um, it was said very well. Um, and I think the, the only other thing I made me think about was the fact that European, European colonisation was competitive, um, and Britain won the competition for European competitive colonisation. And therefore, it's uh, the ideological constructs that it made in order to legitimise its colonisation, its particular manifestation and, and notion of whiteness, um, incorporated all the people that we consider to be white today um, here in Britain, um, which therefore incorporates, willing or unwillingly, Eastern Europe as well as... Is the, is the lacuna in this, though, this lens of understanding racism through British imperialism, is the lacuna, though, that if you look at, for instance, the history of our, colonialism in Ireland or in the Balkans, these were colonies effectively of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Iceland was a colony of Denmark. This wasn't an evenly distributed phenomenon, was it? And sometimes maybe it can elide those differences. Like, Ireland didn't do particularly well out of white supremacism. No, certainly not. But the thing is, the Irish have only been white for a relatively short period of time compared with... Brit the British, right, um, or the, the English. Um, and so different groups are inaugurated into whiteness. The Italians were not, were not whites for a very long time in the United States. So as, as like, um, and I am white in Uganda and in Nigeria. So like, whiteness is this very kind of fluid, malleable thing which changes depending on the social context in which it needs to be mobilised in order to reproduce the status quo. I'll come back to you, Jamana. The question was about Sadiq Khan, gentrification. What would a de-gentrification policy look like that was also trying to decolonize the city? That's a big question. Yeah, um, well, it's great because I didn't get to talk about benefits because I hadn't run out of time. So yeah, just to let people know who aren't aware already that um, the universal credit um, concept that's been introduced by the government basically means that people are now having all of the benefits that they received sort of merged into one and there's a cap on it. And if you, all the benefits you receive, including your housing benefit, uh, goes over that cap, then your housing benefit is the one that's brought down in order to meet the cap. So that's what's been happening. Um, and what that means is basically that you can no longer afford to live where you used to live. Um, and in autumn of this year, the government is planning to bring that cap down from um, what I think it's currently at 25,000 for families. It's going to be 23,000 for families, the total amount of benefits they can receive in London. 
for a whole family. So I think this is absolutely the issue of the moment. And for me, I think what we can... I don't have a comprehensive solution. What Sisters Uncut are doing is supporting local housing campaigns that have, that have sprung up across, uh, across London on estates. Um, we were out with the Save Cressingham Garden Estate campaign at the Lambeth Council meeting yesterday. And kept, those local campaigns are doing a huge amount to try to protect and save those communities. And from my perspective, I mean, I think it's absolutely vital that we do conserve a space for, for those communities to continue to exist in order for London to be an interesting place to live or just... Oh, there's, a, there's a book recently written by Ken Livingston out with Zed. Oh, no, Pluto, isn't it? Being Red. I haven't seen and it. And it talks about in two, 2008, um, he had won £5 billion of Gordon Brown to build social housing in Zones 1 and 2. This never happened, of course, because he didn't win that election. Um, Gordon Brown was willing to give this to him because clearly Labour didn't have much else going on. Um, in terms of local elections, they were doing very badly. This would have been the outlier. It could have been a real exemplar of what Gordon Brown wanted to do after winning the general election in 2010. This has never happened. What's clear is that since then, we've gone really far backwards, particularly in London, around housing. The thing is, however, that this isn't a competence held by City Hall. So what, I know this is a tough question, but given the mayor election is in May, these this talk is effectively a response to that. What can campaigners and activists do around housing, given the weakness of Sadiq Khan's housing politics, but also the fact that he can't really change much policy-wise? Um, so I'm involved with a group called uh, St Anne's Regeneration Trust, and basically what it is is this community bid to buy a load of land which is being sold off by the NHS and develop actually affordable, decent, good-quality social housing. And in terms of how this project has come about and the kinds of demands that are... are that are being articulated within it, I think there are like the seeds of some real potential for concrete anti-gentrification anti housing demands. One would be social rents. So responding to the extreme arbitrariness of the benefit cap, it would say that a social rent takes up no more than 40% of that benefit cap, right? The next thing would be rejecting metropolitan police oversight over new bids and developments. So that would also be engaging with the intensely racist nature of gentrification and a way of combating it. I think that's a real concrete demand and potentially winnable. And the next one is a bit more abstract, and it's just because, like, um, I'm a secret architecture geek. Um, it would be rejecting the logic of defensible space in architecture, which says that you have to be, you have to reject um, communal space in new developments. You can't have any ambiguously owned territory or space. Everything must be privately owned, so it's very clear whose back garden belongs to who. And in all new builds, everyone must be able to uh, act as a form of surveillance against everyone else. So that's, uh, pun intended, another concrete demand in which you can reflect radical politics within the very architecture and you know, the material basis of the city. Well, thank you for the question. I mean, Unfortunately, a lot of the things that I would suggest are about rolling all back all the awful things that are happening. I mean, the first thing we need to do is make sure that the housing and immigration legislation going through Parliament does not become law because it's dreadful. And you're seeing the hostile environment principle established in immigration rolled out in housing. Uh, we want the bedroom tax uh, gone. We want rent controls. You know, we want everything, but what we also want is for each and every one of us to do more because the whole point about campaigning is taking up the human stories. 
turning cases into issues, issues into causes and causes into national campaigns. And I think that some of the, the, the work that you've been doing in school, some of the stories that you as teachers could tell about the suffering is stuff that needs to get out there. My daughter went to a secondary school in East London. When she was at school, over two-thirds of the children in that school did not have a British passport. So another thing that we should be asking from Sadiq Khan and politicians is for a, a situation where those children, particularly children with not, who have come as refugees and do not have full status and could be deported when they're 18, that their, their situation is made more secure in this country and that we campaign for citizenship rights. Uh, brilliant. Next question. That's it. <laughs> so we've got time for maybe one or two more questions, if people could just raise their hands. We've already had two gents. We'll take one more, but also, obviously, a little bit of balance would be great. And a lot of the stuff we've talked about has been pertinent to that, so that would be welcome. Gentleman over there, anybody else? And the woman over there at the back. So two more questions. Um, I was just curious what, what you think, uh, all, all, what all of the panellists think of the forces behind um, Britain's retreat from the kind of gains of multiculturalism or, you know, the, the, the kind of... That, the idea that you're saying that at one point we, we were the kind of most progressive, you know, Western democracy in terms of race relations and that we're actually kind of retreating and emulating models that have already failed, that are already seen to be failing. Why, why is that? Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit afraid to ask a question and to speak, really, because um, I am a English white woman who, even though I was raised in a single-parent family on benefits for most of my life, and um, I, but I went to a state school. Most of the people I went there were white. There were a few um, coloured people there, and there were... And, well, I, you know, I was... I've, recently realized that I was raised with a very naive, uh, perhaps bigoted, racist point of view from my parents. And I see things in a certain way happening. Um, I've only lived in London for three years. And um, I do try to avoid listening to mainstream media. But you talked a lot about culture and that we think of, you know, there's backward cultures and things. So. My naivety, so maybe, you know, I need a bit of sort of education on this, is that, you know, all of these recent attacks in, you know, uh, recently Brussels in the last couple of days, and isn't it the group ISIS who have claimed um, that they were responsible for it or something that... Um, so do you not think that there is this, you know, gang culture or, you know, certain cultures that have certain... Uh, you know, religious cultures as well that have certain practices that might be instilling that fear in me and other people like me. And that's why we get all of this stuff. Um, and also, you know, I live in social housing and, you know, I'm, I'm on benefits myself because I had mental health issues and I was in... So I have a lot of similar things happening that you've been talking about, you know, sort of... Um, Marg I've been marginalised myself. I'm, I'm a lesbian woman as well, so I've had all of that bulliness and, and all of that on me as well. So, basically, do you not think that certain cultures sort of act in a way that gets us afraid of them? You know, there are 
black gangs that go around and, you know, the graffiti and there's, you know, uh, different rival gangs fighting with each other and there's stabbings and everything. So how can you answer that maybe the fear is put into us for a reason and, and media reports it in a certain way so that we are afraid, afraid of this? So I hope that makes sense. So, yeah. so we'll go with the first question. Um, I've got it written down. Was so, sorry, yeah. Britain, sorry, my apologies. Britain's retreat from a place where it was seen to be relatively advanced when it came to race relations. I suppose Windrush, right? Early to mid-50s, it was relatively advanced. Britain, by the way, has it's had an open-door migration policy with Ireland since it you know, decided to leave, given that there was a war against the British state by Ireland. That's pretty impressive to have open borders, right? Um, so why has it regressed in this way? Shimara, I'll start with you. Um, I, I feel like from what we've been discussing up until now, especially the comments by, by Ash and, and Adam, what, we're, what we've been talking about really is the fact that structurally very little has changed in terms of the way in which black and brown communities are being uh, treated by the state. So in fact, though the discourse might have changed over time and there might have been a more or less positive view um, propagated about communities of colour, in fact, we've remained at the margins and we have continued to be the subject of surveillance by the state and continued to make up a, dis a disproportionate number of people in prisons and in mental health institutions since we arrived. Um, and I think that in terms of the sea change, I'm sure that there are people here who have a much more informed position on why that's happened. But I think it's important not to overemphasize um, the difference, really, because I think that we've always experienced a, a great degree of marginalisation at the hands of the state. Um, I think that was a really well-articulated response to that question. If I may, I might just skip right to the second one, because I think there's a lot, there's just a lot in there that I would like to unpick, and I feel... I think these guys need to come back to the first question. And I feel it's salient in terms of what my response to the first one Okay, go on then. Answer, um, them, answer them together, then, yeah. So I'm just going to answer them together... Um, and then, and then I'll shut up. And I think that there are, there are two things in, embedded in that, in that comment. One is, what is whiteness? What function does it play as a method of social control? And to come back to the first question, how has that reasserted itself in contemporary European and UK politics, right? So that's the first thing that I think we need to address. And then the second is, how is it that, um, that, that folk devils come to play a part in politics? And how, how has that come back in such a um, tangible and powerful way, like especially like after the 1990s? So, so for me, these two things are really bound up together. The first is, um, what, what is whiteness? And how is it that um, Britain's uh, sense of its own cosmopolitanism and multiculturalism has receded? Um, these two things are intensely bound up. And I think that's because during the 1990s, during the 80s, in which it seemed that a particular form of anti-racism, multiculturalism was making gains, whiteness wasn't actually necessarily in retreat. It just found another form in which it could assert itself. I think today, rather than whiteness as, a, um, <coughs> as an ideology, as the ideology of white supremacy, and also as a function of social control, has found a way for it not to declare itself, to 
for, for it not to declare itself. It's the phantom center of power in which other, and in that logic, other people have races. Whiteness is just the universal. It's the backdrop. I think once upon a time, whiteness was incredibly propositional, right? It was the um, light bearer bringing enlightenment value to the darkest corners of the world. Now whiteness doesn't declare itself as that. I think whiteness encodes itself within ostensibly secular and raceless values, and everyone else is um, contrasted against that. So in this discourse in which it's certain people putting the fear of God or whatever into everyone else, whether it's um, black gangs who apparently the worst thing they do is graffiti, which I think is kind of sick, um, or the much more troubling specter of regressive political Islamism. Um, whiteness functions as um, a weirdly invisible victim, right? It's civilization that's attacked rather than whiteness, and everyone else is um, presented in these like intensely racialized terms. Um, I, I, I guess why I'm stumbling a bit is because I've, I've, I found these comments um, incredibly incredibly problematic and in, in some ways troubling because I think we see perfectly how it is that um, people of colour are blamed for every social ill in the world rather than people of colour actually being the primary victims of these very forms of violence that you're describing. That's the trouble I had with those comments and that's why I'm a bit stunned. Can I, can I come back to you? So the left in the 19th and 20th century and the global north, the developed world, it was overwhelmingly talking about universalism, but it was a white universalism because the composition of these countries was very different to what it is today. And the left itself, the humanist left, is secular. So the, those kinds of comments, you, you obviously, you know, you hugely disagree with, but there are variants of that, even from, you know, from left intellectuals, they're articulated in a very different way. And they say, we can never have a redemptive emancipatory politics that's also got religious kind of input. So how would you respond to that? Or is that, or is that just a racist statement? Because I say, look, I'm not a Christian, I'm secular. And it's a secular tradition in all these countries as well, right? Biggest communist party in the world, I think, ever was in Sudan. So, I mean, how do you... I mean, I mean, like, humanism doesn't necessarily have to be a racist humanism, right? And Fanon gets into this really well. You can have a form of humanism which identifies the fact that um, Enlightenment humanism, European humanism, was predicated on the creation of, I think Sartre calls it, slaves and monsters, right, of racial others in Africa and in Asia. And what you can have as a proposition to meet that is an understanding of what it means to be human rooted in the most marginal and the most oppressed in the wretched of the earth, right? That's, that's the thing that he describes. And I think that's actually a way of thinking that really needs to be resurrected and brought back um, as a way of showing that these concepts about you know, who, who is European and who is other, these aren't raceless. Um, they're intensely racialized, and we need, a, we need a discourse that can grapple with that, while also not making any apologies for regressive political forces, right? And, and for what it's worth, I view glo you know, the global phenomenon of political Islamism and as well as the global phenomenon of Islamophobia as both to be products of globalization, right? They both rely on the erasure of specific cultural and ethnic differences. And I think that's a product of the failures of decolonization. Um, Kunani puts it better than me, so.
everyone read him. Liz, if you could answer both questions together and then... I'm going to answer both questions together, but I'm going to put them upside down, Great. if that's all right Great. with you. Who you are is what you do. We all are born with an identity. I mean, we don't have to accept that identity. So for me, the most important thing is to build unity in action. So it doesn't matter what the various aspects of your identity are, but you have to go beyond identity politics. So I think when it comes to what's going on in the world, for instance, we've just, we brought out quite recently a book about black deaths in custody, 509 deaths in the custody of the police, the immigration services, uh, and the prisons of black people, people of colour, migrants, refugees. But that doesn't mean that white people aren't dying in police custody as well. White people are dying in police custody in many of the similar circumstances. Uh, people with mental health problems are vastly disproportionately represented in our prisons, and that's white people and black people. And we need to build unity in action around these issues. So that would be my first point. The second point is, of course, we all come <coughs> from culture. You know, the tendency in the media is always to teach, treat culture if it was something that just belonged to sort of black people and people of colour. But white people exist in this universal, enlightened world. But I mean, I think that, you know, there are lots of arguments that you can use to sort of counter people who, you know, provoke fear in you. You can say, well, look about the fact that there have been something like 222 arson attacks on refugee centres in Germany carried out by neo-Nazis. We say they are neo-Nazis. We don't say they are white people, or the media doesn't say that whites have this endemic fascist culture in Germany because they're German and white. I mean, everybody would freak out and faint if, if we dare to say that. So that's how I kind of answer that. On the other question, um, sort of similar answer in a way. I mean, monoculturalism is becoming the security blanket. That's why we're moving backwards, because... <laughs> You know, these, um, call it capitalism, call it neoliberalism, these huge transformation that have happened very quickly in our society is unravelling society. <coughs> and at the same time, we have war, we have militarism, we have all these international failed wars, and we have the terrorism. We have the suicide bombers. So, you know... I see the whole way that British values, patriotism, loyalty discourses, monoculturalism is a way of them trying to keep everything together when everything's falling apart. But there's also parallels in other areas. I mean, we're living in an age in a match, a huge onslaught on all radical progressive policies, whether it's race, feminism, disability rights, uh, etc. So I, I see those things as connected. I mean, that's not necessarily true, is it? Because you look at, for instance, the institutional success of the LGBTQ movement, mm. you know, white, gay people do pretty well. I mean, in terms of how their rights are, mm -hmm. their rights are now civil rights, they're respected a hell of a lot more mm. than they were 30, 40 years ago, or is that just an outlier? Is that, does that not apply to other groups as well? That's the exception that proves the rule. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, very quickly. I think that... There's three things here, right? So there are three kind of examples 
that we used in our second question, there was this idea of gangs, there was this idea of um, like Muslim extremist violence, and there was this idea that um, you can be white and still be oppressed. Um, and so I'll kind of try to um, address them one by one. The first one is relation to gangs. Um, I know the, the Race and Class um, did a really, uh, published a really interesting study recently which looked at Manchester um, and the gang problem of Manchester. And what um, uh, the author did was he um, asked for the police for um, how they identify a gang member. And they said, um, serious youth violence. So all these violent things, robbery, discharging a firearm, assault, so on and so forth. Brilliant. Can I have all the people you identified as being involved in that crime? Here you go. Great. Can I have also have all the people you identified as gang members? Yes, here you are. Okay, can you break the statistics down by ethnicity? Yes. What did, they, what did he find? He found that um, over 80% of the people involved in serious youth violence are whites. However, he found that over 80% of the people identified as gang members are black. Um, this wasn't like the police being like, <laughs> let's, do, let's put them all as gang members, because they just gave a black academic all of this data, not thinking like <laughs> what he's going to do with it. Um, but it's an implicit assumption that, that these people are the gangsters, they are the gang people. It, the, the fact that the material reality is, com is the polar opposite of what they're proposing doesn't even occur to them to a moment. It doesn't even occur to them to the point that they will give that data over to a black academic who's going to publish it and, and show everyone how stupid they are. Um, and so I think that, um, okay, so, no, okay, put that aside for a second. Second one, what happened in Brussels and, and, and other terrorist attacks? I think we need to remember there's one billion Muslims on the planet, right? So um, the idea that a few hundred of them have engaged in forms of violence and that this should be applicable to an entire religion, I think is kind of problematic in, the same, in, in a comparable way to um, the fact that Britain and America have killed half a million people in Iraq. We would not use that to, to make any assumptions about um, about uh, European Christian culture in the same way as killing 100 million indigenous peoples of the Americas shouldn't um, lead us to those kinds of assumptions. And I could go on and on and on, but I won't. Um, and I think that the reason that we're able to make these assumptions is, bec um, is because of, um, well, there's an interesting kind of idea or book by a guy called W.E.B. Du Bois called The Wages of Whiteness. Um, and what he talks about, what the boys talks about in the wages of whiteness is that even if you're very very poor as a white person you still get the wages of whiteness and what that means is you still you are still culturally salaried you 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 know that whatever happens your the actions that you take and the actions that other white people take will never be um, uh, their whiteness will never be used as a reason for that happening. Every other possible reason will be used, whether it's other characteristics that are used to oppress them or whether it's other um, um, other kind of outlying reasons, but whiteness will never be used as a reason, because as has already been said, whiteness is considered universal, whiteness is invisible, it's never, it's never essentializing, it's never in the same way as we will give black people, they must be doing it because they're black, they must be doing it because they're Muslim, this will never happen, they're doing it because they're white, and that's the wages of whiteness, and that's um, what means that despite being oppressed in many, many other ways, if you're racialized as white, if you're identified as white within a society, you will always be um, empowered in that way. Great. Final point. I actually want to respond to that. In a city where you've got, I think China is expected to have a bigger GDP than the EU and the US combined by 2030 or something, right? Doing incredibly well. Lots of billionaires in all these massively growing cities. Ditto India. India's going to become the world's second largest economy pretty soon. Lots of these people have, are buying property in London almost as a form of reserve currency, as a, as a Bitcoin of the rich. 
How does this analysis also encompass the transnational capitalist class, which sometimes is not, it's mostly East and South Asian, right? So how can it also encompass that? Very quickly, uh, if anybody has any thoughts on that. Uh, very quickly, um, I think it's, um, although there's a, a significant amount of economic power, I think, in parts of Asia, um, there still isn't the kind of militaristic and political power, right? So if, even though the United States owes lots of money to China, if China turned around and said, United States needs to pay us our money back, America would be like, no. And there's nothing China could possibly do. Um, and I think that the other thing is that the other power that India and China and other nations don't have is they don't have the power for regime change. The United States can instigate a regime change in, in more or less any, in many nations on the planet in order to facilitate and reproduce its own power. Um, many other countries, such as China and India, aren't able to do that in quite the same way. But in terms way. of the subject position of these people in London today in 2016, uh, billionaires, yeah. <coughs> I mean, yeah. how, how does this analysis integrate them? Um, and, you know, yeah. they, they're exploiting low-pay cleaners and who are also overwhelmingly people of colour as well. Yeah, so um, I think the important thing is you don't need white people to have white supremacy. Um, and we had, we've had colonial administrators in many parts of the colonies for many years who look very much like the people that they're oppressing and the fact that they are, they are constituting a bourgeoisie, or if you, if you read Fanon, not really a bourgeoisie, a caricature of the bourgeoisie. Um, and so I think that it was, it's still likely to reproduce those same power structures, even if you do have... Um, yeah, people from other national racial groups um, facilitating those, those same processes. I mean, just to quickly respond to the point that you made, um, I think what's really key is to look at the way in which um, post-colonial capitalism, right, and, you know, the bourgeois nationalism um, that exists within these states, how much it relies on the old colonial infrastructures in order to sustain itself. I think you can see this very clearly in India and Modi's administration. One of the things that's really striking is that Modi has been using old um, colonial era, very archaic anti-sedition laws, which were brought in to suppress anti-colonial action and um, political assemblage. Um, he's using these laws in order to, to suppress um, Dalit, so lower caste activists, uh, left-wing academics, um, and you know left-wing movements more generally, in order to. Um, institute his incredibly regressive program of Hindu nationalism and institute his neoliberal market reforms. Um, so his entire method of opening India up to market, which in some, in some uh, sectors of the population is being framed as um, an anti-colonial project, is relying on these colonial infrastructures. Um, so I think we need to emphasize the continuities rather than looking at this as a decisive break with the colonial era. Um, just, just on domestic servitude, so I mean, when we're talking about domestic violence, I haven't really been able to dwell as much on migrant workers. Um, and yeah, absolutely, when we talk about a uh, master with a different face, I mean, in the UAE, for example, or indeed here in London, you can have Arab families or rich Indian families with, um, with servants who are from Nepal or who are African. Um, who are basically caught in domestic servitude, who are raped, beaten, some, sometimes murdered, um, and who have absolutely no way of accessing their rights whatsoever. So I think you're right, the absence of whiteness isn't the absence of the power structures. I think Great. Well, finally, how can people who have found you incredibly enlightening, illuminating, how can they uh, keep in touch, Twitter or whatever? I'll go from Adam and then come. Uh, yeah, Twitter, um, at AdamEC87. And you're involved in Ceasefire magazine, aren't you? Oh, yeah, um, Ceasefire magazine as well, ceasefiremagazine.co.uk.
old and boring, don't do Twitter, don't do Facebook. Uh, look at our website, www.ir.org.uk. Um, on Twitter, I'm at IOCZ, but me and Aaron work for Navarra Media. Um, we've got a weekly radio show, published stuff online, so feel free to check us out. Uh, we're sistersuncut.org and at sistersuncut. Great. Thank you, everyone. Great questions. Really great evening.